0: How important do you think it is for you to have good, strong, personal ethics, good morals? Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I'm in church, so. (laughs) Yeah, it's important, right? Uh, I guess I'm going to say it's pretty important because I'm here in church, you know let's talk about real life life away from church you know a lot of times we like to compartmentalize our lives whether it's good or bad sometimes that can be helpful sometimes it's not so good but you know life away from church and business and relationships at school work wherever we might be Um, we see people sometimes that have questionable ethics or even uh, bad ethics and yet sometimes they succeed uh, they, they seemingly succeed all the time. You know? It doesn't seem to cost them anything, or at least not much. And so it causes us to wonder, Well, you know, what's, what's the payoff here? I mean, why should I be good if everyone else is sort of cheating the system and cutting corners and that type of thing and maybe being dishonest? So, you know, really, in real life, does being a little bit dishonest, hey, if it gets you ahead, isn't it worth it? Well, the short answer to that is no, it's not. And here's why. Dishonesty, whether it's in business, in relationships, in life, it costs you more than you realize. There's a hidden cost, almost like a a hidden tax that you pay for dishonesty. And, and that's why we have so much... Um, just talking about taxes for a minute, why we have so much nonsense in uh, government we pay for because we don't feel the sting of having to pay for it. You know, the taxes that are taken out of your paycheck, it's a hidden tax. You never see it. It'd be a different story if uh, you got paid your full amount, gross, and then every month you had to cut a check to the government for 40% or whatever. And you'd be like, what in the world are we paying for? Well, you know, we got to... A professor over here at this college that needs to do a $200,000 study and that watering grass makes it grow, you know, something like that. So, you know, we'd, we'd lose a lot of the nonsense if, we, if our taxes weren't hidden taxes. Uh, but nevertheless, dishonesty like that. Dishonesty makes you pay a hidden tax that you don't really realize until later. And sometimes that hidden spiritual tax that you pay for being dishonest, it becomes, over time, a not-so-hidden reputation. Other people begin to realize that maybe you're not an honest broker, that you don't carry through with your word. And so once you get the reputation for being dishonest, uh, then that cost becomes quite much more severe. And so there's a a little story, a strange little story, in Genesis chapter 21. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis 21. The last little part of it, in Genesis 21, there's a story where Abraham has to come to terms with the dishonesty that has become sort of entrenched in his soul. And today we're going to read this little story and see if we can come away with a few principles to take home. And to do this, we need to understand it from the perspective of someone who is harmed by Abraham's dishonesty. So we're going to look at this story, at least initially, from the perspective of someone that was, we might call, the victim, or the one harmed by Abraham's dishonesty. So imagine for me, if you will, for just a minute, that you are the king of a city-state. Like the king of Lubbock. Let's say you're the king of Lubbock, you know, not the mayor. The mayor has limits to his power. You're the king. You can do whatever you want. And we're not talking about you being like Alexander the Great or one of the Roman Caesars where you've got a million square miles that you govern. No, just just a town, a city, and you're the king. And the, the town has a king, and that king is you. In fact, your father was king before you, and you inherited the crown from your father. And so you tell people, I want you to call me Abimelech. Why Abimelech? Because the word Abimelech in the Hebrew means my father is king. And so that's your name. You call people, you tell people, I want you to call me Abimelech. Sort of a nod, a little uh, little acknowledgement of your dad and all of his accomplishments as king. But now you're the king. And so you want people to call you Abimelech. And so here you are. You're, a, you're Abimelech. You're the king, not of Lubbock, but you're the king of a little town called Gerar in uh near Israel, modern-day Israel. And so you're going about your business. You're doing the things that kings do. And a visitor comes to your town. And this visitor, is, his name's Abraham. And he brings his household. He brings his servants. And when we talk about household and servants, we're not talking about a maid and a butler and uh, you know a couple of uh, uh, cousins or anything like that. We're talking about hundreds of people. Hundreds of people descend upon your town and they're led by this guy named abraham and he brings all of his flocks too you can imagine all these hundreds of people with all of these flocks they come to your town and so this guy must be a pretty important guy so you welcome abraham to your town come on in and there with abraham there's this particular woman she always seems to be right at his side so you make an inquiry hey abraham who's this woman and he tells you oh her she's my sister And he said, is that right? And Sarah speaks up, the woman speaks up, and she said, yeah, he's my brother. And it sort of dawns on you uh, that, well, maybe this whole thing can work out. And so you say to Abraham, you know, it would be good for you and good for me if I were to take your sister as my wife. She wouldn't be my first wife. I've already got a wife, but she'd be my second wife. And so I want to take her as one of my wives, and, and this would be good for both of us because it would connect your household, your extended household, with my kingdom. And so we would have a good relationship there. And so that's what you do. So you take Sarah as uh, your second wife. And now, for some reason, you never consummate the marriage. I mean, you're busy. You know, you got things going on. You got you got bills to pay, you got taxes to collect, you've got citizens to subjugate. You know, you just have lots of kingly things to do. And, and besides all that, you've got a younger wife than Sarah, than Sarah, and she may be a little bit more interesting. All right? And so you never get around to consummating the marriage with, with Sarah. Well, time passes, and, and you begin to notice something unusual, something quite suspicious, Something quite unusual. And what it is you notice is that none of the women in your own large extended household, none of them, not one of them, is getting pregnant. Not your first wife, none of your family's wives, in fact, none of the maidservants in your employ, none of them, are getting pregnant. Not one. This is most curious situation, no way, this is just a coincidence. Something is going on here. And so you're not sure what it is, and you go to sleep, and that night you have a, de- a dream, a deep, dark sleep, and you're in a, you have this wonderful dream, except it's not so wonderful. In this dream, the God of Abraham, the guy who came to your town, whose sister, you think, is now your wife, the God of Abraham comes to you and visits you in this dream, And God says, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't know. Abraham lied to me. And Sarah, the woman, she lied to me too. This isn't my fault. And God says to you in the dream, take her back to Abraham. He is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live but if you don't return her you and all that is yours will die you wake up and you've learned two very important things number one you've learned abraham is a liar he is dishonest. And the second thing you've learned is Abraham has got protection from on high. I mean, he's got protection from the most high God. And so, what do you do? You return Sarah to Abraham. And you voice your displeasure with this man and his wife for their lives and almost getting you killed. And you tell him, settle your household and your flocks anywhere you wish. I mean, it's all open. Whatever land seems good to you, you got it. And on top of that, you give him a bride's price. You pay him a thousand pieces of silver along with Sarah as a public witness to everyone who's watching that this woman belongs to him. I mean, you have settled this issue. And Abraham, what does he do? He prays to God. And his prayer to God reopens the wounds of the women in your household. A little bit more time passes. And behold, this woman, Sarah, that almost cost you your life. She's pregnant. She's 90 years old. And she's pregnant. And she has a child. And you think, this is absolutely amazing. What kind of God has the power to open and shut the wombs of women at will? And what kind of God has the power to enable a 90-year-old woman to give birth to a son? And why is this God so favorable to Abraham Even though Abraham acted with deceit toward me, what is it that Abraham's God is up to? What is Abraham's God doing through him? I mean, it just seems like whoever blesses Abraham, Abraham's God will bless. And whoever curses Abraham, Abraham's God will will curse and so now with this new knowledge about sarah and her child and everything else that you've been through with abraham and abraham's god you make the wise decision i want to be on good terms with abraham and so you go to abraham and you want to make sure you're on abraham's good side smart move by you and here's what we read in genesis 21 Beginning in verse 22. Now it happened at the time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying the obvious. God is with you in all that you do. I mean, this is the understatement of the year. That God is with Abraham. I mean, Abimelech has learned the hard way that Abraham's God keeps his promises and what was the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 over 25 years before God said to Abraham whoever blesses you I will bless and whoever curses you I will curse and you figured that out now as Abimelech and so let me just add this for us today when God is doing something it is really in our best interest to get on board It is in our best interest to get on board. Only a fool would oppose God. And Abimelech, he may be a pagan. He may not be a believer. But he ain't no fool. He is not going to oppose Abraham's God. And so we read, continue to read, God is with you in all that you do. He says this to Abraham and then he says, So now, swear to me here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me. Let me translate that. Abimelech says to Abraham, you have a reputation for being less than honest. You know that? You lied to me. Can you be an honest broker now? Can I trust you? Promise me. Swear to me by your God, that you'll be honest with me from here on out. Abimelech brings Abraham's God into the equation. He basically is saying this to Abraham, you say you believe in God, act like it. You know, it's a bad thing when someone knows that you are a follower of Christ, but they also know that you're a cheat and a liar. We need to be reminded that we're Christ's ambassadors. What does that mean, an ambassador? It means that the ambassador to Denmark, when he speaks, he's speaking for the president. In the same way, you are an ambassador for Christ. When you speak, you represent Christ. And so if you're out there in the world doing business with people or in relationships and you're a cheat and a liar, and yet you say you claim Christ, that's not a good look. It's not good at all. And you know, I know that some Christians they they're like, "Well, that's why I don't tell anyone at work that I'm a Christian. That way, my nonsense doesn't, uh, you know, reflect poorly on God." Well, that's an interesting strategy. It really is. I got another interesting strategy: behave, do the right thing, be an honest broker. Fulfill your word. You say you're going to do something, do it. That's a pretty good strategy, too. And then you don't have to hide the fact that you're a Christian. What a shame it was that a pagan like Abimelech had to ask the man of God to be honest. But that's where we are. He asked he had to ask Abraham to be honest. And so he said, Swear to, to swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring, or with my posterity. Abimelech has been so affected by his interaction with Abraham and Abraham's God that Abimelech understands something very important. God's blessing on Abraham is so profound, it is so great, Abimelech knows that it will continue through Abraham's descendants. Even though Abraham only has one descendant. As far as Abimelech knows, he only has Isaac. And so Abraham is spoken to by Abimelech, and Abimelech says basically this, let's make a deal. Let us benefit one another. Let's make a deal that's going to extend beyond just the two of us today, but it will continue in the generations that follow. And Abimelech finishes his statement in verse 23 by saying this: But according to the loving kindness that I've shown you, you shall show me and the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham, I've been an honest broker with you. I haven't lied to you, I haven't mistreated you since you've been here. I've shown loving kindness to you. Please return the favor. Show love and kindness toward me and even to the land to which you've sojourned. Show love and kindness to that too. And Abraham says in the next verse, I swear it. Abraham makes a promise to be honest. And this is very important. It's a very critical point in Abraham's life. Because he's not used to being honest when it comes to dealing with foreigners, dealing with outsiders. He's not used to it. Way back in Genesis 12, Abraham lied to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Pharaoh wasn't happy. Then Back in Genesis 20, Abraham lied to Abimelech, as we've described today. And Abimelech wasn't happy. But now it's not just a matter of making other people unhappy. Now... Abraham's character has been called into question. And Abraham has been looked in the eye by another man, and the other man says to him, Change. Stop being dishonest. Change. Stop the lying. Be honest with me. You know, sometimes for us to change our character We need someone to look us in the eye and confront us. and That's what it took. A little intervention by Abimelech. And so Abraham says, I swear it. Abraham does a little inventory of his own heart. From now on, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be honest. I swear it. However, there's another issue. And Abraham has been saving this issue. He's got something in his back pocket. He's got something, he's got an issue that he hasn't revealed yet. An unresolved issue that he's kept to himself until now. Maybe he's just been looking for the right time. Maybe he's been looking for the upper hand, I don't know. But he has an issue that he wants to bring back to Abimelech. And the issue is this. It says in this second verse, Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water, which the servants of Abimelech had seized. Abimelech's servants, they seized, they control now, a well of water that Abraham had dug. Now, you got to remember, in that type of arid and dry land, water is more precious than gold. I mean, you want water. And Abraham dug a well at this place that, by the end of this passage, will be called Beersheba in Israel. And then modern Beersheba, you can visit it today. You can go to modern Beersheba and there's a little old town or old uh, area of Beersheba, which is more likely the place. And in this old area, there, there are three wells in this old area that are ancient wells. One of them is 12 and a half feet in diameter and 42 feet deep. That's a big Well, That is huge. A second well is 5 feet in diameter and 42 feet deep. The third well is nine and a half uh, feet in diameter and 23 feet deep. And I don't know which one of those Abraham dug, but it's probably one of those. Do you know how difficult it is to dig a 42-foot well? Neither do I, and I don't want to find out. (laughs) But Abraham did it, or his servants did it. And dug this huge well have access to the water and now they can't use it because abimelech's men strong-armed them out abimelech's told this and abimelech says in verse 26 i do not know who's done this thing you did not tell me nor did i hear of it until today you didn't tell me abraham and no one else told me either you know i almost feel bad for abimelech you know, he innocently takes a wife, and God says, not so fast. He's trying to make good with Abraham, and Abraham says, not so fast. Abimelech keeps getting surprised by all these things he doesn't know. You know, sometimes if, if something needs to be fixed, and I'm talking about a relationship needs to be fixed, something in business needs to be fixed, you might be blind to it. You might not know it until someone tells you, hey, we ought to fix this thing. And so Abimelech, he finally figures it out. And you get the feeling that later that day, Abimelech's going to go back into town and he's going to give somebody some what for. He's going to, he's going to let someone know. Who, who did this thing? Who put egg on my face? All right? Who did this thing? He's going to have words with whoever seized Abraham's well. Well, so now we've got a few issues. Abraham and Abimelech, what are they going to do? They're going to cut a covenant. And there's two issues at hand. Issue number one. Will Abraham and Abimelech get along? Are they going to have honest dealings with each other? Number two, how do they resolve this issue with the well? So they're going to deal with these in order. Number one, will Abraham and Abimelech get along? So here's what Abraham does to fix that situation. Verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them cut a covenant so they made a deal a public deal sealed signed, delivered public deal they made a covenant now what's the deal with the sheep and the oxen i mean for most of us you know if if there's a problem a relationship problem or whatever we have with someone we we say to the we say the other person um hey you did this wrong thing and the person goes oh sorry you know they're like, okay that's fine and it's over you know they just sort of shrug their shoulders and say sorry and you know it's done. But not with Abraham, not with Abimelech. They, they do something unusual, at least to us. Abraham gifts some sheep and some oxen to Abimelech, and the reason for that, this is a public exchange of goods. This is a concrete public acknowledgement that the wrong has been made right. It's over and done. There's a principle of reciprocity here. Abraham is acknowledging his wrong by being a dishonest broker and he's giving a gift and he says, we're good here. You and I, we're good. We're perfectly fine. Then there's issue number two. How do we move forward if we have this outstanding issue with the well? And again, Abraham takes the lead. In verses 28 through 30, we read, Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. couple of features here. Number one, what's the deal with the ewe lambs? Well, these seven ewe lambs are young female lambs that can soon consume, that consume breed is very valuable. Okay? You get one bull, seven new lambs. It won't take long before you got yourself a, your own flock. All right? So this is a very valuable gift. And the gift of the lambs to Abimelech secure the water rights to the well. Question. Why? did abraham pay for something that was rightfully his i mean he dug the well or servants did it's his well well i want you to remember that abimelech's servants they seize control of the well with no compensation but what abraham does is once again in public he settles the issue with compensation This compensation settles the issue. It's my well. I dug it. And now I've paid for it. I created it. And I paid for it. By the way, just as an aside, that very much reminds me of how God owns you and me. God owns us because He created us. And God owns us because he paid for us. Christ died on the cross and redeemed us, paid for us on the cross. You are doubly owned by God. Remember that. Well, this well, we could rightfully say, is doubly owned by Abraham. He created it, and now he paid for it. And I know there's probably some of you thinking, well, you know what? I ain't paying for something that's rightfully mine. If I already own it, I'm not gonna pay extra for it. I'm not gonna pay for it twice. Listen to me. Sometimes the wisest option is to simply make peace and move on with life, even if it costs you a little bit. What's your other option? be it loggerheads with each other for the rest of your life, never get along, never resolve anything, because you want to just dig in your heels, and the other person wants to dig in their heels, and so you spend years, decades, you spend your entire life never getting along with each other over the, something that could have been settled easily. Sometimes the best thing is just, hey, Let's put this behind us. Let's fix it. Abraham's wise. He fixes it. And by it costing him a little bit, he gains something so much greater. Sometimes that's the wisest choice in life. And so now it's settled. Everything is public. It's out in the open. Done. Therefore, Verse 31, he called that place Beersheba because there the two of them swore an oath. So they cut a covenant at Beersheba. Abimelech, excuse me, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. So he called the place Beersheba. Why? Well, Beersheba's two words, beer and Sheba. Do you know what beer means? You're like, yeah, I know what beer means. I'm not that good of a Baptist. No, Okay, not that kind of beer. But the Hebrew word be'er means well. It means a well that you dig. And no, the well did not have beer in it, okay? Uh, It's a well. And Sheba means oath. This place is now known, even to this day, this place is now known as the well with the oath. The well that has an oath attached to it. And then we read in verse 33 and 34. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. What's a tamarisk tree? A tamarisk tree is a tree. It's a real leafy tree. provides a lot of shade. It's at full height, 20 to 30 feet tall. And, um, and so it, it provides shade and it's a marker. Why did Abraham plant a tree? Well, maybe, maybe he planted a tree there because maybe it reminded him way back 25 plus years before in Genesis 12 verse 6 when he was in Shechem and there was an oak tree, much larger tree, an oak tree in Shechem. And he's there at the oak tree when the Lord appeared to him. And the Lord told him, I'm going to give you the land very important part of his life. Or maybe he planted this tamarisk tree because then in the next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis 13, when he was in Hebron, there were some large oaks. Once again, huge trees there. The oaks of Mamre. And he built an altar there to the Lord because that is where the Lord showed up again. And the Lord told him, the land that you're in now, it's all yours. Walk the land. All of it's yours. I'm giving it to you. And then once again, in Genesis chapter 18, he's at those same oaks, the oaks of Mamre, and the Lord appeared to him again under the tree. And this time the Lord said to him, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah, and you'll call him Isaac. The Lord had a way of showing up at trees when Abraham was at a tree. So he plants a tree here. And I've just discovered in my life that sometimes the best place to have a talk with the Lord is sitting under the shade of a nice tree. But anyway, he plants this tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of Yahweh. The name of the Lord. And look what Yahweh is called. Look what Abraham calls Yahweh. The everlasting God. Yahweh Olam. The everlasting God. Why? In this strange little story about wells and territory and conflict and honesty, why is God called the everlasting God? Because Abraham realizes. That in spite of his dishonesty, the everlasting God has given him an everlasting covenant. That God himself will be with Abraham and Isaac and all of those descendants that would come later. God himself will be with them for all eternity. How is this confirmed in Abraham's heart? Because what just happened? A king came to visit him. Abraham didn't have to get permission to go into the presence of the king. No, no. Abraham is so blessed by God that kings come into his presence now. And Abraham realizes that this covenant that God has made with me It is an everlasting covenant. Kings come to visit me. And kings acknowledge the God that has called me to serve him. And kings acknowledge that my kingdom, my progeny, my descendants will also be looked after by God. God has established a covenant not just with me, but with me and Isaac and his descendants after him. That is why the Lord is the eternal God. Abraham is very much in many ways an example for us today. And I would want to point out one thing in Abraham's chronology that you and I need to take home today. Abraham came to believe in the Lord in Genesis 15, verse 6. God made a promise, Abraham believed it, and God said, Your belief is righteousness now. I count it as righteousness. But... Abraham was still a liar at that point. He was a liar before with Pharaoh and he was a liar afterwards with Abimelech. Abraham had belief in God, but it took some time before God changed Abraham's character. And I want you to understand that because of this. I've heard some people say, well, I'm not going to trust in Jesus yet because I need to get my act together first. You know, there's some things I got going on in my life that aren't right with God, and I need to straighten that stuff out first, and then I'll believe in Jesus. I want you to understand something. You got the order flipped if you think that's the way to do it. Abraham is living proof. You've got it wrong. You believe in the Lord today. He will work on your character. Believe me, he will work on your character. Sometimes when you don't want him to. He will work on your character. You don't have to fix your character flaws first before you're good enough to come to God. It's not the way it works. The way it works is you believe first. God will deal with your character later. If you wait until your character changes before you you start following Jesus, you'll never follow him. And you will die in your sins and be eternally separated from God. God doesn't want that for you. God says to you, come to me with all of your flaws, with all of your junk, with all of your nonsense. I can handle it. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for all that stuff. He took care of it all on the cross. God says, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today. We'll work on you. Thereafter, let God work on your character.